and uh, the example of how I do it, or whoever is discipling you. Uh, the example of how they do that is, is for you not only to learn the Bible, but to learn the procedure by which we, uh, we take people and help them with the Word of God in their life because that's what it needs to be. And then we saw David as the king. What a great study that was, and I wish we could have spent weeks on it, but we couldn't. Uh, we, we could have, but we just didn't have the time to look at David as the king. We saw in that aspect, the second aspect, how that it's a picture of you and I that when we're on top of life, that we really have a handle on the Word of God, the power of God in our life, and basically uh, there's, the, uh, there's the theme for the song that we sang this morning, Victory in Jesus. You're always in victory uh, because of the Christ is the King of your life. And then we saw David as God's man, and I think that was the most tender aspect of the whole thing and really shows you how it all pulls together. And I hope, you know, after last week, that you now too have begun to uh, go into the book of Psalms and begin to Psalms 119 and begin to uh, break down your own prayer to ask God to make you everything that God wants you to be. So today I want to begin reading in Romans chapter 4 and verse 9, and we'll finish out the chapter. Then we'll be here for a couple of weeks, but I want to read the rest of the chapter, then we'll break it down as we go through the next couple of weeks. Blessed uh, cometh this blessing then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that the faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Now let me help you with this. Here again, we're into Romans where it looks like you're reading a law firm's uh, dialogue on some kind of ex parte or something. But what you have here is, he's talking about the fact that, uh, that the righteousness just wasn't to somebody under the law. Abraham, when he got the righteousness of God in Genesis chapter 12, he had no, he had no sign of the covenant. He had nothing. He is still a Gentile in the sense of, of the fact that uh, God has called him out, but he has nothing uh, that uh, God has given him yet as far as the sign and the seal of circumcision. That comes a little bit later in his life, and that's what he's saying. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Now there's a great picture. Now, some of you won't get this, but if you're a little bit down the line, now there's a great picture of spiritual circumcision in the Old Testament, even though we're still uh, falling from, from, the, from the New Testament, and if you understand the concept of spiritual circumcision. Verse 12. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which being, uh, had, uh, being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. That's a great verse, too, if you start looking at uh, dealing with children. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, 
when he was about a hundred years old, uh, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, uh, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that uh, what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Not, uh, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, you'll give us today what we need in here. Help me to begin to lay this out, to set a context, and then to come back and break these things down that they might be able to grasp the great truths that we might also uh, understand uh, what you've done in our lives. Thank you for today. Pray you'll bless it now. Let every word that comes out of my mouth be ordained of God to touch the hearts of your people. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. You can see at a glance, or at a reading I should say, how that Romans is such a technically uh, technical book out of the way it's written. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to take these passages, this is why I read it, and we're going to break it down that you might, you might uh, understand uh, the, how this thing lays out in, as it re- relates to, the, to Abraham. Now, now, David, we now know, we've got this worked out, he represents the child of God who gets God's righteousness imputed to him in face of a law that demands death. And we talked about this last week. When uh, David committed his sin, there was no law, there was no sacrifice for the law. The law in the book says that you had to die. Capital punishment was the only law. And then we saw how that God gave him the sure mercies of David. We defined those mercies and we showed you how that David in the Old Testament represents exactly what you and I have in the New Testament in a picture of your eternal security. And now we've come through verses 9 through 25 and it brings us to the second man we're going to look at. uh, And this man is Abraham. And Abraham is a great picture of how, again, uh, we get God's righteousness by faith. And you want to keep this in mind. Where David represents you and I getting God's righteousness imputed to us, uh, when we don't deserve it, under the penalty of death because of our sin. Abraham will represent for us, us getting God's righteousness by doing absolutely nothing, the gift of God, through the grace of God. And uh, it's, a, it's an, a tremendous concept. Now, here's another difference you want to put down. When we studied David last time and the three aspects of David's life, the great thing that came out of David's life that we, wanna, that we really focused on was the fact that the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And we, we developed that to the point where last week we saw and went deep inside and saw how David built that relationship to get God's heart. So David represents for us the heart of God. Now we come to Abraham. And it's in these two men, not only do we see the two definitions of imputed righteousness, but we begin to see the two concepts that really make your life and my life what it needs to be. Where in David we see God's heart, in Abraham we see the friend of God as to his relationship with God. It's probably the greatest study in all of the Bible that I know of, and certainly the most complete study, of how to work through the trials of life, how to overcome uh, the mistakes that we make in life. And through the process of of falling down and getting up and falling down and getting up, becoming God's friend in in spite of ourselves. And I don't know, I don't know of of any man in the Bible in a more complete form represents that. But you want to remember, David is going to be the picture how you and I get God's heart. Abraham is going to be the picture how you and I become God's friend. 
And when you blend the two of them together, you have a tremendous study that unlocks some, uh, some incredible things that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. And as I said, we'll break these things down in Abraham's life in context of Romans chapter 4 to see the great parallels. Now, most of you that's been around for a while, you know what I'm about to say. But in your Bible, you know, every number, not every number, but there are certain numbers in the Bible that stand for certain things. We call those Bible numerology. In the Bible, the number three stands for the completion of something. It's the order of God's structure in everything that he does. Uh, the Bible, when God wrote the Bible, the Bible has three applications. For you to get the complete understanding of the Bible, you have to get the doctrinal, the historical, and the inspirational. Uh, God's Son, when He came down to this earth, God gave Him three distinct names. Every one of those names go together, yet every one of those names represents something in an individual aspect that you study His life to understand the completeness of Him. The Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of those parts of his name mean something different in the Bible, and uh, you never understand totally who he is till you understand the definitions of those three names, because three in your Bible is the order of completion. You know what? When you went to school, no math problem is complete till you get the third part. You can have two plus two, but until you get the answer, it's not complete. You know, they, you can have a husband and wife, but they're not called a family until the little bambino shows up, and then, that, then it's a family, because it's complete as far as the structure is concerned. We live on planet Earth. Planet Earth is made up of three things, the air, the land, and the sea, just three things. And uh, when you look at all the things that are made of, it's called matter, uh, and matter is made on source, generation, and position. Time only has three aspects, past, present, and future. Everything. Everything that is complete, that when God made it, and it's completeness, now seven is the number of perfection, but three is the number of completion. The Old Testament books, for those of you that just, uh, uh, the last test, flunked out of institute, you know it's, it's I'm just kidding, historical, and it's, it's doctrinal, and it's the prophetic. It, it deals with the three aspects. Everything breaks down. That's why when we studied David, we studied David as a shepherd and a king and a man after God's own heart. That really shows you the completeness of David. But when we come to Abraham, we find that Abraham's life is a similar study. And we're going to break Abraham down into three aspects, and that's how we're going to study his life to get the complete picture. The first one is going to be Abram. And Abram is what he was called before God changed his name to the second thing where we're going to look at him, and that's Abraham. I'm just going to say this now, and we'll come back in time and look at it, but every time God changes a man or a woman's name in the Bible, it's very, very, very significant. It always means something. And it means something in your life, too, that you need to learn the parallel. Then we're going to look at not only at Abram, and then we're going to look at him as Abraham and what that represents between the two. Then we're going to look at Abraham as the friend of God. And we're going to put all that together just like we looked at David as shepherd king and a man after God's own heart. And that's how, what we're going to get out of chapter 4 uh, through nine, verse, uh, verses 9 through 25 uh, over the next couple of weeks. But today, you know, I want to set a context. I'm a big context guy. I learned years and years ago that if you're ever going to get the, you're going to get the reality of something, you have to see the context that it sets in. And that's certainly true of the Bible. And I don't like to study anything in the Bible or look at anything in life without really getting the context. I think it's absolutely crucial to be able to do that. And I want to set uh, today a context in the life of Abraham. And uh, then we can better learn and apply the great lessons and the great parallels of his life. Now, 
Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and uh, pick it up in verse uh, 1. I know most of you know this, maybe, uh, maybe not all of you, but uh, there's enough new people here that I want you to understand how this lies. And of course, if you already know it, the price of learning is repetition, so that's how you get it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to show you a real key passage uh, in learning your Bible and learning about yourself and, 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 and learning how, why I do what I do. You hear me talk a lot about, you hear me use the word types. You hear me talk a lot about types. You hear me talk a lot about uh, parallels. Uh, you know, parallel is something that goes side by side with something. In the Olympics, if you're watching the Olympics, they have the sport on the parallel bar. That's two bars side by side. Well, in the Bible, parallels and types are things that, that go together, and the two of them match to show you something. You've heard me say many, many times that the stories in the Old Testament will always lay out and show you what the New Testament principles are at work. That's a parallel. You see the Old Testament story, and then you find the New Testament passages that run parallel to it, and the one reveals what's going on, and you get a complete picture of what's uh, happening. Now, the definitive passage for this that you need to know is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 12. And I want to read it for you, and then we'll make a few comments before we move on. Remember today, we're just going to kind of set the context. It says in 10.1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant of how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat of the same spiritual meat, and did all drink of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them com uh, uh, committed and fell in one day, uh, one in twenty, uh, three in uh, twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur uh, ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed, other destroyed. Now, what he's basically done here is walked you all the way back to the nation of Israel, starting with Moses, and he's brought you all the way up to, through the book of Numbers. And what he has done here is he's laid out some things that the nation of Israel got into. He's laid out some things that the nation of Israel uh, got, uh, got into. And now look what he says in verse 11. Now all these things, the things that we just read, the murmuring, the fornication, the uh, idolatry, all of these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the world's come. Wherefore, cause what he just said, wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, that's one of the greatest passages in the Bible that connects the stories in the Old Testament and show you that what happened to them is likely going to happen to us. Human nature on both sides of the cross, Old Testament and New Testament, is exactly the same. And you're going to find the same problems that they have or the same problems that we have. God wrote the Bible, as my old grandmother used to say, this Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this Bible. And that was a great piece of wisdom. 
And when you look at that, you realize that the reason why God wrote the Bible is so that you and I don't have to make the same mistakes and go through the same heartaches and the same tragedies that befell the nation of Israel. In samples and examples. In samples, you've heard me say it many, many times. In samples are something that you are. So we look at David's life, Abraham's life, and we see their character. We see their flaws, where their good points, their bad points. Examples is something that you do. We see the man do what he does, and we watch through the examples and the examples, and the Bible says that these things are for our admonition, admonishment, learning through a process that you and I don't make the same mistakes in life. And it's a great passage on that, and, and uh, this is where I'm coming from when I tell you that the Bible, uh, uh, I tell you that you, you've got to live your life by the examples and the principles of the Bible. This is what I mean when I talk about parallels. This is what I mean when I read in the Old Testament. Somebody will ask a question on Thursday night, and they'll say, read me a question out of the Old Testament, and I'll immediately take it and bring it into a New Testament context that applies to you, uh, even though it's written in the Old Testament. The way, because those stories, even though they're men that were in the Old Testament and they, they, they're not part of the church, they're God's people in the Old Testament scenario, the things that they do, the examples that they are, the examples that they get into are for the, you and I to learn those lessons because human nature is the same on both sides of the cross. You know, in our discipleship lessons, and we have a set of lessons that I think there's 10 lessons in there that we bring people through when they really want to begin the foundation of their life with God. It's a, it's a situation where you begin to get the basics, the fundamentals, so to speak. And we do it all different ways, but each lesson is designed to do a specific thing in your life as far as helping you understand how the Bible goes together and how it applies to you. I think it's lesson six that uh, we talk about a very important study. And it's probably one of the most misunderstood things anywhere in all of the Bible. And in lesson six, we talk about the difference between God's plan for your life and God's will for your life. And I know, I know, I don't know of anything, and there's, there's so many things that people are screwed up on today, uh, save people. I don't know of anything that throws more people off the track than missing this point right here. When you miss this fundamental concept here that is biblically based and laid out in the Bible very clearly, uh, you're, you're off someplace where God's not, and you're going you're gonna to get into some trouble someplace down the line. But in the same thing, I don't know of a better study in a man's life in the Bible that shows how this process works. I can stand up here and take lesson six, as many of you have done and are doing, you know, in discipling people, and I can lay it out, the story, and tell you doctrinally how it lays out, take it to the verses in Romans and all those places and define all those things. But let me tell you, if you want to understand God's will versus God's plan, and you want a viable, visible story in a man's life who in every aspect that I know of lays out what your life and my life should be from the moment he got saved right up to the fact when he dies. If you want a viable working picture of, a, of the process of a man like you and me fulfilling God's plan and God's will in his life, I don't know of a better study than the life of Abraham. Abraham meets all the requirements. Abraham meets all the requirements of God fulfilling His plan in His life. Now let me just say this to you, and I want you to keep this in your mind as we come through this today. 
If you're saved this morning, if you're saved this morning, God has a plan for you. Now, his plan will be different for everybody. Robert, you got saved this week, and I want to tell you something. Look over here where I can see you. The moment you got saved, God said, I can use that guy. I got a plan for him. Now, your job from this point on is to let God develop that plan. You're young. You're good looking. You look like you look a lot like me when I was your age. You got everything going for you right now in your life. Everything. You got people around you. God has dumped you into a church. You got Matt as your friend. You got everything you need right around you now to help you fulfill God's plan in your life. And that's, this is the greatest time in your life, Robert. It's the greatest time in your life because God wants to build that plan in your life. Now, the thing you've got to understand is this. God has something that He wants you and me to do. Some place He wants us to go. Or something specific He wants out of your life and my life. Amen. And the thing that you've got to understand, there's a difference between God's plan and there's a difference between God's will. Yes, now God's plan for everybody in here is different. God may have something different for you than He has for me. The person sitting next to you, He'll probably have something different for them than He does for you. God's plan is what He wants to accomplish in your life that you do for Him in the time you have allotted on planet Earth. But God's will, ladies and gentlemen, is the same for everybody. And God's will for Robert is the same as it is for me. Though God's plan for Robert may be different than mine, God's will for him is the same as mine and is the same as yours. And that simply means God's will is that you and I Work every day at becoming more like Jesus Christ every day of your life. Every day of your life, you cease to be a little more less Bob Alexander and a little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In the process of coming to church, the process of Thursday night Bible study, your discipleship, our one-on-one, our institute, all the different aspects and the roads that we have around here, it really exists for one purpose and one reason. It meets you at whatever level you're on. And it helps you develop your God's will for your life that in time you can fulfill God's plan for your life. When you look at the life of Abraham and, his, and study his life, what you find in its basic form, and it's a great model, it's something that every child of God ought to sit down and study out and lay out and get it where we need to get it, you find God fulfilling his plan in Abraham's life as Abraham fulfilled God's will in his life. And I don't know what to tell you, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what to tell you. This study... As we set the context today, and that's all I want to do, I want to show you the background that brings this thing that you go out of here today recognizing, that one, God has something He wants you to do for Him. It's literal. It's physical. It requires your hands and your feet, your abilities, your job, your talents, whatever. But you only fulfill that as you focus on fulfilling God's will for your life, which is becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see some things today, and I wish, I'm going to tell you right now, I won't do this message justice. I need about 28 hours to do it, but I'm going to give it the best shot I can. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. I'm sorry our big screen here is not working today that we normally put the verses up for you, but 
it was stolen last night in a drunken party here, and we'll just have to get along without it and just use the Bible today. Sorry. Genesis chapter 12. Let's get our context. Let's see the parallels here of Abraham's life as an example, as an example, and certainly as an admonition. Now, Genesis chapter 12, here's where it starts. Here's where it starts. God's first contact with Abraham. In this case, it's Abram. We'll get into that next week. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance, and they had gathered, and the souls that he had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Now, first thing I want you to see is this. Point number one in my message, and you can see it very clearly. God has a plan for Abram. He called him out. He even gives us an insight into the plan. He says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations in you, Abram. All the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This plan, Abram, will affect the course of the history of the entire world. This plan, Abram, will, will affect everything that goes on and where it goes down through life on planet earth. And I'm sure that Abraham couldn't have grasped the significance at that point any more than you sitting here this morning, wherever you're struggling through in life. And I know that everybody struggles. It isn't about do we struggle or do we not. It isn't about Joe over here don't struggle and everybody over here does struggle. It isn't about that. Everybody struggles. It's just a matter of on what level you struggle and what are you going to do with your struggle. That's all that really matters. Abraham was not, had a clue, like most of you do not today, that God wants to change the course of the world through you. He wants to make a difference that goes on and on. And I know what comes into your mind. You say to yourself, well, I'm not like Abraham. Through Abraham came all the nation of Israel. What is going to God do through me? Just wait and see this parallel. There's more in here this morning than I can, I can even begin to lay out for you. But what an incredible thing. From Abraham, his seed is going to come his family. From his family is going to come Isaac. From Isaac is going to come Jacob. From Jacob is going to come the 12 tribes. From the 12 tribes are going to come the nation of Israel. And in time, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to come through his loins. The salvation of the world was in the plan that God had for him. And Abraham didn't even know it. If God would have told Abraham right there, you know what, someday out of your loins, out of your seed is going to come the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be the Savior of the world. Abraham, he, he, if... He couldn't even grasp the fact that God was going to give him a seed when he was 99 years old. How in the world would he have grasped that? Same way it's hard for some of you to sit here this morning looking at life through your troubles, looking at life through your issues, looking at life through your problems, 
and not seeing the hand of God in your life wants to take you and literally by you, you, yes, you, change the course of this world if you'll let him. If you'll let him. I think every Christian ought to be like a, uh, when I was back in Ohio, we had this guy, he was kind of a goofy guy, went to high school. And he, he built a little radio station. I mean, not a ham radio, like a FM radio station. It only had one watt. I think he got out a nine-block radius. All he did was when you drove through the section, listened to another radio program, it interfered with you. He had one little watt. He had an FCC license. I went downstairs one time, and he had a, things on the wall, WC6643, whatever it was, you know, and he was on there. He had a great radio voice, and he had all these things down there, a one-watt radio station. And every time he opened up his broadcast, he said, Hello, world. Hello, world, from a one-watt radio station. I thought of that years and years. That ought to be the thing in everybody's heart today. Right now, you just think you're a one-watt radio station. You have the ability, if you do what God tells you to do, someday to say, hello, world, and reach the world. You will. You will. You will. There's so many ways to do it. There's so many things that God wants you to do. But the thing I want you to see is this, and I, I want to speak to you young parents for a moment. I want you to see this. I want you to speak to you. If you're a young mom or dad in here and you've got young kids, I want you to listen to what I've got to say. I want you to understand this great truth. And I see this, I see this messed up I don't know how many times in life. But I want you to listen to me. If you're a parent here and you've got little children, if your kids are 16, 17, 18 years or old, you can learn it, but you can't change it now. But if you're coming up and you've got some little kids and little guys, little gals in your life, you better see this great principle. You realize, you realize that God, when all the things that he just said, you realize that he never intended to do that through Abraham by himself? Did you grasp that? That it said, Abraham, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. But Abraham didn't do that. You realize in your life, the reason why God gives you children, why God gives you uh, girls and boys, and why God gives you children, because God maybe won't get it all done through you. Bible says we only got three score and ten, that's 70 years. God recognized the great concept that he wasn't going to get it all done through Abraham and it was going to be Abraham's family that carried on what God began in the heart of Abraham. Oh, you missed this, ladies and gentlemen, and you missed it all. You missed this, you missed it all. Hey, when God looked for Abraham, when he looked for a man, when he looked for a man that was going to do and he was going to develop his plan through that God knew, it was going to take longer than the life of Abraham. Look what he said. Look what he said in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18 and 19. It says, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Ah, verse 19. For I know him that he will, look at it, command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgments that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. You know what's missing today? 
missing that parallel. The, ability, the inability of parents to, to command their children. Notice it didn't say that he's going to suggest to his children what to do. Notice it didn't say he's going to party with them and work it out. And No, it says command his children. Now let, may I offer you the great parallel? When God brought out the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 12. They're called the children of Israel. In Exodus chapter 4, they're called God's son. Do you know what God the Father did before he gave that Jew one concept of the law? Do you know what God did as a heavenly father to his children, the Jews, before he issued one concept of the law? you know what he did? He commanded them in ten things they're not going to do. They said the ten commandments. No, no, no. The ten non-negotiables. In every family, mom and dad, listen to me. You got those little kids growing up in your family. Before you try to enforce anything out here, you better set down some things that you command your children to. And it, when it comes to these things, it's non-negotiable. When it comes to these commandments, they're non-negotiable. As long as they live in your house, they go by these rules. They don't want to go by these rules, let them move out and go someplace else. You see, the mistakes that parents make is this. They can't make the hard decision. They have no commands in their family. They don't see the great concept that, that, that God won't get it all done in your life. Now, I have the distinct advantage as a pastor that I become many of your spiritual fathers. So I have a great advantage because I can invest myself into all of you because I know God won't get it all done through me. And I'm counting not on my immediate family, but this family that God has given me as your spiritual leader, you're my spiritual sons and daughters if you so choose to be, that I can, but see, you know what I have in this church that some people don't like? Some commands that have to be done. This is a non-negotiable concept. And what happens is in families, is parents will not set down the rules. They will not have some things that are absolutely non-negotiable. And when they don't do that, when the kid grows up or she grows up to be 15 or 16 or 17, they say, I don't want to go to church anymore. Or they want to live with the world. Or they want to do what they want to do. And now you are powerless to stop that. And what happens is, hey, God has a plan for your life. And the devil wants to short circuit that plan. God knows through the Holy Spirit of God that you and your life as a mom and a dad. You never will fulfill all that God has for you. God wants you to do it through your family. But before, the thing that God looked for was he will command his children after him. Command his children after him. Abraham got in there and the boy said, I don't think I'm going to church today. Abraham says, yes, you are. No, I don't think I am. Yeah, I think you are. Well, Dad, you know what? I'm 20-some years old now. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, you're right, but you're still under my house. And this is God's house. We live by God's rules. 
And there's some things that are absolute here that are non-negotiable, son. Well, I'm not going to go by them. Fine. You know what? I, I One time in my life, only one time, did I ever see a father deal with this thing in, in a total way, in a concept. And I'm sure there have been others, but this was one I was privy to. And he sat down there and he had a rebellious boy who lived in his house, lived like the world, ran like hell with all the unsaved people, did all the things, never came to church, never had any spiritual inclinations at all, and yet wanted to come home at night, flop in the house, wanted dad to feed him, wanted dad to clothe him, wanted dad to keep him warm out of the rain and all of those things. Dad says, it ain't going to happen. This is God's house. And the kid obviously went ballistic, you know, and they pulled the same old stuff that they all pulled, you know. And this is where most parents can't hold the line. This is where most parents cave in. Most parents at this point fall under the delusion, oh, if my little girl or my little guy runs out there and goes into the world, I'll lose them forever. Hey, dingbat, you already lost them. You got your body. You don't have them. They're in charge, not you. You're telling them, and then they're telling you, they're setting down the commandments, not you. You got the whole process backwards. He said, son, you're going to church. You're going to Bible study. As long as you're under my roof, that's the way it's going to be. This is God's house. Kid says, I ain't going. Kid, dad says, all right, you got two weeks to find you someplace else. Hey, you want to live like the world? You want to be a big man and understand the world? Or a big gal and figure it all out? Then go support yourself and figure it all out. You know what I call that in the Bible? It's in the book of Luke. It's called the prodigal son syndrome. And this guy said to his son, Son, you see this house? God gave me this house. You see the food that we eat in that refrigerator? God provided that. Amen. You see the clothes that we have, the car in the garage, and all the stuff that's around here? God gave us this because we love him and worship him. And son, I love you. I care for you. But it is against the Bible and it's wrong for me to take what God given to us and let you live like hell, run with the devil's crowd, and then come back and find solitude here. If you like serving the devil and he's such a great guy, then let him feed you. Let him close you. And the kid left. Eight weeks, nine weeks, ten weeks. And oh, the great prodigal. You know that prodigal son when he left over there when he's on his own out there? You know where he got? He had a good house. He had a good time with the father. His father obviously is rich. He has a lot of things that he has. And he's having, he has great things. But he didn't like that. You know what his problem was? He didn't want to follow the father's commandments. So father said, okay, son, you're on your own. Off he went. Wow, what a great, great change from the nice servant room with the bed being made with the laundry being done to the pigsty when he's eating the husk of the swine greatest verse in that story and a verse for every parent that finds yourself in that situation and you can't make the hard decision when you cave in when you give in when you allow them to live under your roof not doing what the Bible says because you have not commanded your children after you. Bible says, down there with the pigs. You ever see pigs? They are the dirtiest animals in the world. They live in swallow. They eat anything, including you, if you get too close. <laughs> Filthiest animals in the world. No wonder God says you can't eat pork. 
Well, then after Arthur Bryant was born, God said, I'm going to change that, and now you can. But in that great story, you know what it says? When he's down with the pigs, when he's out and daddy's not putting gas in his car, mama's not fixing his meals, he doesn't have the nice comfort of his bedroom and the servants he can order around like he does his parents. Oh, no, now he's down with the pigs. And the greatest part of that story says this. And when he came to himself, Nothing like a prodigal pig experience to get that wayward kid to come to himself. Woman said to me one time, well, I don't know what to do. If, 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 I, if I do this, he'll leave. And I said, let him leave. But he has no place to go. Hey, let me tell you something. A cardboard box under I-435 in November is a great wake-up call. It's a great wake-up call. And if you're lucky, maybe you can find two big washing machine boxes and you can put a bathroom in. Hey, 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 you don't get it all done in your life, folks. You better have some young ones, young people, coming up. Your little kids, your little ones that you've got right now, you better get it in your brain. You're either going to command them after the way you walk with God, and then you're going to be able to tell them what they need to do based on establishing some non-negotiable terms. You live in my house, under my roof, with God paying the bills, God doing this. This is what you're going to do. Can't happen. Won't happen. Won't happen. God's people today are absolutely oblivious to this. And this is why, this is why I'm telling you young parents, you better grasp this concept. You know, the key word in association with the Bible is one word for you and for me. One word. One word. It's the word structure. Because we need structure. We are structureless people. We are, we are, we are people that are prone to all kinds of problems. We are people that, that, that are dysfunctional. We have the ability, inability to be able to follow through with anything. And today in the day and age we live in, I have never seen a more dysfunctional Christianity in all my life. And I say it, I've seen the Christians that are absolutely, totally inept when it comes to dealing with their children. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. It doesn't matter. It matters when the hard line has to fall. When the hammer hits the anvil. That I hammer better be made of iron instead of rubber. And I'm telling you, structure is the key. The kids demand it when they're little. They grow up with a structure. God, the first thing he did when he got the nation of Israel out in Exodus chapter 20, they come out in chapter 12, he gave them a 10-point structure of command. It wasn't the 10 suggestions. It wasn't the 10 good ideas. It wasn't the 10, well, I hope you won't be offended by these. It wasn't the 10, it was the 10 commandments that formed the structure. That's what a church is. Church is structure. And many people, when they come to church, they don't like structure. Because we live in a structuralist society. Normally, when it happens at a place, they'll, many times they blame it on you. If you're discipling them, you try to keep them accountable. Many times they'll blame it on, on me. 
And, was, and how many times I hear this? Well, Bob, he tries to control everybody's life. See? Let me translate that for you. This church is a structure that you don't want to be in. Steve Rackin, how long have you known me? How old, were, how old were you the first time I whipped your butt in camp? 13. <laughs> Do you know me any different now than I was then as far as what I hold, what I stand, where I'm at? He's probably the oldest one. Oldest one. John Hill, how long have you known me? I married you and Jan when you didn't even have a mustache. 35 years ago. You've known me to change ever. Am I the same now as I? I mean, I am better looking, obviously, and I am a lot smarter. But in my basic approach to people in life, have I changed? Jimmy, where are you at? He's with the kid. Pam, where are you at? How long you know me? Uh, don't, too long? What does that mean? How long you know me? Have I changed? Am I the same way I was now? Am I? Well, great. Well, bless your heart. I am, aren't I? Yes, I am. My point is this. I haven't changed. I believe the exact same thing right now that I believed 25, 35 years ago. I don't put anybody under any more accountability now than I did then. I just simply believe this book. You know what this book is? You know why you don't like it? Not you guys. But you know why some people don't like it? Because this book represents a structure. And you don't want to be structured. And you're not man enough or woman enough to stand up and say, Bob, I'm an idiot and I don't want to be structured. No, you'll stand up and say, Bob's the problem or you're the problem or this person discipling me is the problem when the truth is this book is about structure. That's all it is. We need structure. The church is God's structure. But within the church, there are some hard, fast concepts that are non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. And that's just the way it is. He commanded his family. Oh, it's one of the most incredible concepts. And the thing that I want you to understand, ladies and gentlemen, is simply this. You are not, mom and dad, you little tykes down there, you are not going to fulfill all that God has for you in your life. The plan of God for you doesn't begin, it may begin with you, but it doesn't end with you. It goes on through your children. You train them. You under, give them your vision. You give them your concept. And you allow them to carry on for you what you, through death, when you get old, can't fulfill. And that's exactly what God told Abraham. But it starts with you understanding and commanding your children. Now let me show you this. Let me show you this. Look at, go back to chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Now, let me show you what Abraham gets into. Let me show you. This is great. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. God says, get thee out of thy country. Look at verse 1 after that. And from thy kindred. Look at verse 1 again. And from thy father's house. Now, you know what? God told Abraham to completely separate himself from everything and everybody in his life. He says, you separate yourself, you separate yourself from your country. You separate yourself from your kindred. And you separate yourself from your father's house. He was told to separate, forsake all, and to separate himself from everything to get this plan accomplished. Look at verse 1. And I will show thee, I will show thee, I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee by thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Notice conditional. 
You got to leave the things behind before you can get what I got for you. No plan of God without the will of God. Let's see how this thing fits. Look at verse 5. And Abram took Sarai his wife, that's okay, Lot his brother, and their substance, and they gathered in the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth into the land of Canaan. Oh, they went to Canaan, okay. He just took everything with him that he had and didn't forsake all that God told him to. Now, you know what that's called? That's called latitude. You hear me talk about it all the time in dealing with people. It's part of your problem, my biggest problem. Verses 1, ladder, you know what latitude is? Latitude is the distance between what God tells you to do and then what you really do. In chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, God told him what to do. And in verse 5, this is the latitude. He didn't do anything. He brought everything in the world with him. He didn't obey God. He didn't forsake all. He brings everything he had in the world with him. Everything that God told him to forsake, Abraham thinks he knows better and he brings it with him. Just like we do. You better, if you're not, if you're not willing, if, when you get saved, if you're not willing to separate yourself from the world, if you're not willing to put those things out of your life, I just, I, you know, and I need to ask you, some of you, to do me a favor. You know, I never had the internet for years because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a caveman when it comes to modern technology. I, I, I have a cell phone and I do one thing, basically. I call people on it. It's got multimedia. It's got tasking. It's got all kinds, it's got things, and it's got a browser. And I'm scared to death that I'm, you know, I hit something on there, you know, and it's going to connect me with the FBI or someplace, and they're, you know, I mean, I, I'm scared to death of it. I just, you know, and my finger, you know, most phones, they're, they're, the buttons are so small and our fingers are so big, I hit two buttons at the same time. And then I don't see very well without my glasses close up, and man, I'm, I'm just calling everybody that doesn't need to be called. Well, I finally got up to speed, and now I'm on the Internet. I've got 400, and look this morning, because I was checking something on eBay. <clears throat> I got 430 emails, and I don't know how to get in to figure out where they are. <laughs> I'll tell you, man. I'll tell you. <clears throat> Somebody likes me. <clears throat> I don't know who. <clears throat> I, I, I look at those things, and I say, but let me do me a favor. <clears throat> I... <clears throat> And this is what I mean. Bless your hearts. Well, well some of you out there, I, the, the thing that just drives me nuts, and I tell you what, you know, some of you ought to go off and take your MySpace off the computer because what's on there isn't conducive of what you say here. I got an email last week from somebody. And I was kidding about the emails. I do know how to figure them out. I got an email from last week and somebody saw somebody's MySpace and sent me a thing, this person's MySpace, and he says, I thought this person was, was a member of your church. I went to the MySpace. I mean, what, are you stupid? Or do you think when you put something on the Internet that it isn't going to wake its way back to me someplace along the line? 
I mean, you come to church on Sunday morning, and maybe even mom and dad don't even know you got them. And you got all, but my goodness, I looked at this thing, and I thought to myself, and I emailed the guy back, and I said, you know what? I'm sorry. He must be a member of my church, because he sure couldn't be a member of the Lord's. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? You see, that's it. You won't separate yourself from the world. Some of you are saving on your way to heaven. Some of you guys, and you still think you can have an unsaved girlfriend, and it'll play out for you. Or a girl, and do you think you can have an unsaved guy that'll play out for you? And you know what? When they're not saved, you know the next game we play? Oh, they really are saved. Hey, bring them around to me. I'll tell you in five minutes if they're saved or not. Oh, no, no, no. You'll offend them. You bet I will. In Jesus' name. Amen. You just don't want to know if they are or not because you're in love. Please take, and your most important people that you influence in your life, please take my name off. Please. If I had a MySpace, and I don't even know what a MySpace is, don't know how to go one, don't know how to build one. But if I had a MySpace, you know what I'd have on there? I'd have some great pictures of people dying and burning and going to hell. Come on. And I said, then I would say, this, pointing at the picture, is not MySpace. How about yours? Amen. Now how about that one? Instead of your favorite pinups or the garbage that you put on there. Incredible. Incredible. Now, once you, if you're not willing to separate, if you're not willing to leave the world over here, you're never going to fulfill God's plan. And I'll tell you why. Here's the next greatest word coming out of today, compounding. You know how you put your money in the bank or an IRA or one of those things and it, the money you put in there and it compounds interest over a period of time? Well, let me tell you something. In Abraham's life, perfect study. When he started the latitude gig and he, God told him what to do and he didn't do what he wanted to do, you know what the, you, the distance between what God tells you and what you do is the latitude? You give the devil an inch. As somebody once said, you give the devil an inch and he'll become the ruler. Abraham wants to believe God. I believe he wants to obey God. But you know what his problem is? He can't let go of the things that he's got to let go of to get where God wants him to go. Oh, I see God's people in this struggle all the time. I struggle with it all the time. And what happens now is a compounding effect. He didn't obey God. He didn't forsake all. And now one bad choice will never stay one bad choice, ladies and gentlemen. One bad choice will grow legs and then grow wings, become another bad choice. We call this the compounding effect. Years ago, I was preaching at a youth rally down in southern Missouri, probably 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I had a sweetheart little gal. She must have been about 17 or 18 years old. It looked like she could have just, just as, as, as picture perfect and as beautiful young gal as you could ever meet in your life. Before I preached, she got up and gave her testimony. Wonderful testimony. This gal could have had anything she wanted in life, or anybody she wanted in life. And this gal had a lot of, a lot of ability, a lot of talent. And she gave one of the most wonderful testimonies I've ever heard in my life. Well, after the Bible, after the message, you know, a bunch of people got saved, they had a little kind of a reception. And I was talking with her there, and I said, well, honey, I really appreciate that testimony. And she said, well, Brother Bob, I appreciate your message. We went back and forth. And we stand there talking, and a little, another little gal come up. And she comes and she tagged her on the arm, and she says, oh, she says, I want you to know, 
She said, that was the greatest testimony I think I ever heard. It was such an encouragement to me. She said, you know what? She says, I'd give the world to have a testimony like that. That little girl looked back at her and said, you know what, honey? That's exactly what it cost me. It cost me the world. That's what it cost you. It cost you the world. We see in Abraham's life where he wasn't willing to do that. And now, now the cause and effect. Now we begin to see the compounding effect of one bad choice leads to another bad choice. Uh, look, at, look, at, uh, look at chapter 12. Just turn over a couple. Look at chapter 12, verses 6. Come on down through here. He goes to Canaan. It says, And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they gathered in their souls, and had gotten in Haran, and went forth into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Now look at the next verse. Look at that at verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass when he come near uh, to enter into Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman. You see what happened? Because he didn't forsake everything that God told him to forsake, when he got to the land, the first time the cage got rattled. God was God enough to bring him out, but he wasn't God enough to get him through a famine. What did he do? He went right back to Egypt, a type of the world. And every time you go back to the world, it compounds it. It compounds it. Because read the verses down through this. He goes back to Egypt, and I just stopped there. Sarai was a pretty good-looking woman, I guess. And Abraham, see, once you... Don't do what he tells you to do. Once you give the devil latitude, he drives an 18-wheeler through it. Now he's down in Canaan, but the plan of God is on hold because he can't obey God. And now a famine comes up. He loses faith, runs down into Egypt, a type of the world. And when he's down there, Abraham starts to take over the driver's seat again. Oh, now, honey, you know you're a good-looking woman. Whoa, you're really good-looking. When we go down there, all those Egyptians are going to look at you, and they're going to know that you're my wife. So what they're going to do, they're going to kill me so they can take you. So you take, oh, be my, you be my sister. You see? That's what happens when God stops driving the bus and you get in the driver's seat. And yet, you want to see the fallacy of it? You want to see the fallacy of me and you in this? Could we all do this? Look what happens. Look what happens. When that famine hits here, it's right back to Egypt, type of the world. And again, the compounding effect begins to fall into his life. And look what he does. Look what he does. Look, at, look over to chapter, uh, look over there in chapter 13. Look at verse 4. Now he comes out of Egypt, he gets down there and he gets in a mess, he almost gets killed, God has to intervene in his life, he's totally out of God's will in his life, totally out of God's plan structure, and he comes down through there, look at verse 4, unto a place of the altar which he had made there at first, and Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Oh my, we played a so spiritual game. Look, look at 13.1, he leaves Egypt. And Abraham went out up, or Abram went out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot was with him in the, into the south. And Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver, and gold. He's still in the same mindset. He just can't let go of all the glittery, shiny things he thinks mean something. 
And he's got the audacity to build an altar to God that says, Why, God, I'm really doing what you want me to do, aren't I? Look at verse 6, or verse 5. Compounding problems, here it comes. All he gets out of this phony altar prayer thing is more chaos in his life. And Lot also went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so they could not dwell together. Let me tell you something, folks. The land is never going to bear your plan and God's plan at the same time. You might as well get it in your mind, kid. You're never going to be fruitful. You're never going to be happy. You're never going to be satisfied as long as you try to do your plan and do God's plan at the same time. It is a non-negotiable item. It is one or the other. And you can blame it on whoever you want to blame it on. You can point fingers at whoever you want to point fingers at. At the end of the day, it's between you and God and your inability to do what God's called you to do. And you'll never fulfill God's plan for your life. You never will. Strife will always be. Strife will always be there when you try to put latitude between what God says and what you want to do. And Adam, Abraham now is in a great pretend mode, like so many of God's people. He's pretending he's spiritual when he's not. Hey, now I'm going to tell you, and I, you know, and I want to say, and I got to address this. Now I know as a, as a child of God, uh, you're going to have strife in your life. And you're going to have issues in your life. Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that all that live godly in Christ Jesus will, bear, will have persecution. So I want to make it very clear. I'm not saying you won't have a strife-free life. I won't say you're not going to have a problem for that. But what I am saying is this. Make sure your strife and your problems aren't caused because you're disobedient to what God called you to do. Amen. Make sure you're suffering for right things. Abraham up there building an altar. He hadn't obeyed one thing God said. He brought everything out of Haran and he brought everything out of Egypt. And now here he is. And you know what? You want to see? You see, we always look short term. God always looks long term. You see your family like we talked about a minute ago and all you see is yourself. You don't look long term and see the impact that your boy or your girl and holding them accountable and the commandments and commanding your family and making sure they do the right thing while you still have control over them. You don't see that because we just look at short term. Abraham's looking at the short term. He's looking at the gold, the cattle, the sheep, the flocks, and all of the stuff. Look at the people I got. He runs from Haran to Canaan, and he loses faith there, but he runs down to Egypt. And when he comes out of Egypt, compound, compounding effect. Look at 16, look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. It says, Hagar the Egyptian. He picked up Hagar down there. Who's Hagar? Oh, she's the one that's going to destroy the whole concept of the nation of Israel. Because he made one side trip that he shouldn't have meant because he couldn't trust God, he picked up Hagar. From Hagar comes Ishmael, and hence this is what we got going on in the Middle East today. I told you that God looks long-term. Let me tell you something else, ladies and gentlemen. The devil looks long-term too, brother. The only one that ain't figured it out yet is you and me. He picked old Hagar up down there. Now from this point on, he struggles in his life. And God's plan basically goes on hold. Abraham is a study of how God calls a man out. 
because God has a plan for that man or that woman. And I'm saying it again. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a saved man or you're a saved woman, I don't care how old you are, God has something he wants you to do with your life. Abraham is the case study. It's the model to show you how you overcome it through the examples and the examples and the admonition of somebody that made every mistake you don't have to. He shows you as a young parent the number one thing you ought to build into your family. You ought to be able to command your children. Your children hit 17, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and they're living under your roof, and you can't tell them what they need to do. You have failed as a parent. Simple as that. You cannot let your little kids grow up that are down that elementary. We may teach them down there. We may do all kinds of things down there. But it is your responsibility to bring them and nurture them up in the Lord, not mine or not some elementary worker. And you start by giving them the commandments. But as I said, very few parents can do that. Abraham's a study of how God calls a man for the filling of his plan and how fulfilling God's will is the key to fulfilling that plan through obedience by faith. You know, a couple of weeks ago, may have been a couple of months ago now, I asked you if you thought you, your life pleased God. Remember, I had everybody, and I asked you, I said, do you really think your life pleases God? Then I, I it was a sucker punch, and then I asked you to give me the defining verse in the Bible that tells you what it really takes to please God. And I could see by the look on your face that 99% of you had no idea what I was talking about, and yet you have fooled yourself into thinking that your life really pleases God when you don't even know what it takes to please God. Boy, if there's any statement on modern-day 20th century Christianity, that's it right there today. You feel you love God. You feel you please God. It's a feeling to you. It's nothing based on a principle in the Word of God because you don't know the Word of God that well. Do you have it? And, you know, it's just where it's at. And I, 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 many of you come over that week or call me on the phone, and many of you in the appointments come over and you said, I want to know what that verse is. Most, many of you did exactly what most cross people do, just moved on with life because you had some better deal out there. But the answer to that question is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And this is where it comes into the life of Abraham. And this is what Abraham is going through in the process of becoming God's man. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, For without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now that's the life of Abraham. And I just need to tell you this. When you study his life, you have got laid out before you the greatest study anywhere in the Bible that I know of. That is a complete entailed study of showing you a man from where he gets saved, and even before he gets saved, where he gets saved and where he winds up. And the struggle that he has in between getting to the place that he winds up being God's friend. It gives you everything you need to know about, one, if you're going to fulfill God's plan, you're going to have to first fulfill God's will. It shows you now that you can't have one foot in the world and one foot with God. You have to leave the world behind. No matter who she is, who he is, what it is, you have to leave it behind. Amen. There's no room in Canaan land from the junk from Egypt. It just compounds your life. It adds stress to your life, and it brings the things in, and you're just kidding yourself and in a delusion if you think you can do that. It shows you young parents how to structure your family because now you understand probably one of the greatest principles in the Bible. God is not going to get it done through your life alone. 
He expects, just like he did with Abraham, to reach the world. Now, this comes back to what I said, how that you can reach the world in time. Maybe you won't do it yourself, but God will do it through your family and your children as you command them after yourself. It's incredible. It's incredible. One of the greatest life stories you'll ever study. And yet I stand before you this morning completely inept to be able to lay it out to the truths that are in there. I, I look at all the stuff that I got here, plus all the stuff that I know, plus the stuff, and I could stay here till 6 o'clock tonight and only be halfway done with it. His life is an absolute gold mine that shows you every aspect that how you fulfill God's plan in your life by first recognizing the fulfillment of God's will in your life. The process of building our relationship with God, getting to the point in our lives where most God's people never get. He actually shows us the, the issues, the problem, the obstacles. And I don't care if he puts it in the form that he went down to Haran or he come out of Haran and then went back down to Egypt and then come out and, and bring to, you may not, you say, well, I don't, you know, I'm not going to Egypt. I don't have any gold, any cattle. That's all figurative. It all is a picture of the substance that he had like we have that gets in the way of our relationship with building that faith. Hey, Abraham is a case study of of a man and, a, and a, that you and I need to learn what the Bible says in the book of Corinthians where it says we should walk by faith and not by sight. In the early years of his life, he's walking by sight, mm -hmm. not by faith. Mm -hmm. Ah, but there comes a process in his life where he ceases to walk by sight and he begins to walk by faith. That's what pleases God. And in that concept, he became the friend of God. Incredible study. We just scratched the surface. Where do we go back and we look at him as Abram? Then we see how and why God, not just how, but why God changed his name. Let me show you the process in his life that brought him to the place where he was, what God equated. Just like God has something that he looks for that, that, uh, that pleases him, God has something that he looks for in you that makes you his friend. I could ask, I could ask that same question. You fancy yourself God's friend today? If you would really say to yourself, yeah, I believe I'm God's friend, and yet just like, do you please God? Probably nobody in this room, maybe other than one or two of you, even understand what it takes, what is the bottom line necessity that God has to have in your life before you can be his friend. See, it's all emotion, isn't it? It's all warm. It's all nice feeling. Well, I heard this great song on the way to church this morning, and, and now I feel closer to God. That don't put you closer to God. It may put you closer to the radio, but it doesn't put you closer to God. Those things don't make you closer to God. But we think they do. Well, I came out and it was a beautiful sunshine and I saw the clear air and it was so nice and cool and uh, I just, <coughs> I felt so, it was just really nice to be close to God. That don't make you close to God. You can be close to God in a mine cave in when you're six miles underneath and you're never going to get out. Come on. We always make it a condition, don't we? We can't just make it the Bible. It always has to be something some circumstance, some song, some event, some person, some this, some that. We just never, we will never learn how to have a relationship and be God's friend based on the way that he says to do it. Well, I got news for you. It's an absolute. My, my fear is that most of God's people, and maybe some of you find yourself in this situation this morning. I don't know. I think for the most part, you're all really trying to do. I'm not downing you at all today. I believe that for the most part, many of you are trying to be everything that God wants you to be. I don't want to discourage you today, but what I want to show you, there's a process to it. 
And there's some people that will learn the process like Abraham did, and there's some of you that will never learn the process. Five years from now, 10 years from now, 12 years from now, you'll be struggling with the same issues today that you, then that you are today. You know why? Because your plan of God for you is on hold. It's not going anywhere. You can be discipled. You can come to church. You can come to Bible study. You can go get you a 65-pound King James Bible. You can, you can get a two-wheeler to carry it around with. You know what? If you don't enact the plan and leave the things of Egypt and Haran behind and begin to put the things in your life that God wants you to have and build that faith. You know why God tells you to leave those things behind? Did you ever get the psychology behind it? You know why God wants you to leave everything behind? He told Abraham, leave everything there. Why did he do that? Because everything we bring with us, we will wind up trusting more than we do God. It's just that simple. Just that simple. It's just that simple. So God just says, dump it all, flush it all, get rid of it all, and just simply begin at square one. And trust me, most people can't do that. Abraham couldn't do it. Most of us couldn't do it. I didn't do it when I first got right. I struggled through the things in my life, still do struggle. But the bottom line is, I know what it takes to please him, and I know what it takes to be his friend. And that's what you learn from the life of Abraham. That's what I hope you get out of this. Because God wants to be your friend. He wants you to be his friend. But he's going to be on his terms. It ain't going to be like your mom and your daddy who allowed you to do whatever you want to do, live the way you want to live, do what you want to do, and still feed you and take care of you. You won't go one inch with God in your relationship till you do it his way. His way is the only way. When I talk about using and applying biblical principles, this is what I mean. His life shows us the obstacles, the issues, the problems that we all have to overcome that will impede our progress and stop our progress, get us off track, and help us lose our focus. When I look at this story of his life, I see his calling. I see God has a plan for him, just like God has a plan for you and for me. I see his struggles because the devil wants to take that plan out of his life. You see, the devil doesn't care if you're a Christian. He doesn't care if you call yourself a Christian. He doesn't care if you profess to be a Christian. He just wants to make sure you never go anywhere as a Christian, never do anything as a Christian. He doesn't care. Man, you listen to that mess on television last night between Obama and, and out there at Saddleback Church and tell you what, by that, everybody in the world's a Christian. Well, I'm thinking now this morning after that, the devil's even a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. I told you before, I've been in the last five years of the ministry. I've yet to find a good old sinner. Most people I have to deal with, I have to get them unsaved before I can get them saved. Because it's all up here. Nothing in here. Nothing in here. Learning how to sidestep the mistakes that keep you and I from the life of walking by faith and not by sight. Becoming God's friend. My goal and my prayer for every one of you and everything that I do, everything that I do, good, bad, hard, indifferent. You may not like it. You may like it. You may not like it. You may complain about it. You may leave the church and badmouth me up one side and down the other. I really don't care. Bottom line is this. The only goal I have for you, I have two goals in mind, one for you and one for me. The goal for you is that I give you the best chance, the best chance for you to fulfill God's will for your life, thereby fulfilling God's plan for your life. And then the second one is very selfish. It's to cover my own rear end. It's a judgment seat of Christ. Even though you don't understand the structure, even though you don't like the structure, even though you don't want to submit to the structure, and you want to blame me or everybody else for the structure, the bottom line is I understand that it is still the structure. 
And I will not stand the judgment seat of Christ. I'll be guilty of a lot of things. and probably won't get much of anything, probably get nothing. But there's one thing they won't lay at my feet, and that is that every time I didn't get in that pulpit, I didn't tell you the truth. You may not have liked it. You may not have cared for it. You may have taken it personal. You may have looked through this big book like this and saw me and blamed me for it. But the bottom line is it was the truth. The truth. It was the truth. You have to do with it what you've got to deal with it. I've got to give an account for me, and you've got to give an account for you. I'll give an account how I preached the truth. You'll give an account of what you did with the truth. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you today. Wow, Lord, what a study. What a